You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Meaning of Life TV. My name is Arya Cohen-Wade. I host a show on Blogging Heads TV, the sister site called Culturally Determined. And today my guest is David Ottlinger. David, could you introduce yourself? My name is David Ottlinger. I write for The Electric Agora, um, which is edited by Dan Kaufman, known to Meeting of Life people, and uh, Dan Tippins, and um, generally think about philosophy and politics stuff. So that's what we're going to do today, right? Right. So this conversation originated in some uh, Twitter exchanges we had. Um, having to do, do with postmodernism and Trump. So the topic today is mainly going to be postmodernism and whether it makes sense to think about Trump as a postmodern figure. Are we in a postmodern age? Are there things that are happening that postmodernism can elucidate or not? Um, or not. Or not. So I, so I'm a, a layperson who doesn't have a firm understanding of what postmodernism means to philosophers, but kind of understand it in the lay sense that has come to, uh, to the general p- public in terms of media and art and architecture. And um, I think maybe our initial interactions with this were based around an article that Jeet here wrote for the New Republic called America's First Postmodern President, which we'll link to. And there was a, um, that was, that came out in July. And for some reason, uh, Tom Edsel at the New York Times wrote a uh, rebuttal piece uh, just within the past week. I don't know why it took him six months to do so, but he his piece um, is headlined, Is President Trump a Stealth Postmodernist or Just a Liar? And um, we'll link to that piece as well. And Edsel uh, mainly comes down on the Just a Liar side. Um, so, yeah, so I think that I found the, the Jeep piece interesting. You found it. Um, uh, objectionable. I think the the main case I would make for Trump being a postmodern figure is that his career and interactions with the media show that he kind of used the idea of, like, he was a businessman, he was, like, sort of successful, but then he had some failures and he had bankruptcies, and he was... um, basically a discredited figure in, like, the late 90s. And then he used this reality TV show, The Apprentice, um, in which he pretended to be a globe-striding business titan to actually turn into into the figure that he pretended to be. And he used that, um, that transformation to legitimize himself and launch his eventual political career. So he used the simulacrum to become the thing he pretended to be and now is the most powerful person in the world. And there's there's other stuff related to his, you know, his uh, vexed relationship with the truth, uh, fake news, alternative facts, um, just the fact that he is such a television figure and uh, interacts, you know, the main way he seems to get information is from watching TV he loves seeing himself on TV. Um, the things that appear on TV seem to have more importance and value now than uh, what the underlying reality actually is. So this all seems kind of postmodern to me. Um, how, do, how does this strike you? Um, yes. So, well, actually, you might have... It's funny you say I didn't notice until just now... Um that there's such a gap between the Thomas Edsel piece and the GTR piece. Um, but this is actually a little bit of a genre, I guess. Um, GTR published a piece, which was maybe sort of the most forward. There was one in um, Salon, which was arguing that, uh, it was talking about Trump in connection to Nietzsche's perspectivalism. Uh, there's one in The Federalist, which take a fairly negative view, as you might expect, from The Federalist. And then Thomas Edsel did... Thomas Edsel's kind of an interesting guy. He sort of has this spirit of, like, I don't understand this. I'm going to call an expert. Mm-hmm. 
And yes, yeah, so he he quotes like a dozen different people who are uh, you know professors of philosophy or history or media studies or something, and ask them whether they think uh, Trump is postmodern. And most most of yeah. them say no. Most of them say no, but he decided to call every expert, <laughs> and like there were like twenty people, including like people like Gary Gutting, who you know I think would be very difficult for people to understand if you don't happen to know who Gary Gutting is. But, um, yeah, I'm very skeptical of this kind of attitude. And uh, I think it, probably it's best to say something about sort of what postmodernism is. Yeah, I mean, it seems hard to define, and that's part of the purpose. But if, if you were, um, you know, introducing a philosophy uh, section on postmodernism, and one of the students said, I don't understand what this thing is, what would your concise definition be? Well, I mean, it's kind of notoriously difficult to define, partly because um, postmodernists um, always, they all disagree with each other, and they all have um, different versions of their story, and a lot of them uh, deny being postmodernists. There's a joke about existentialists, not postmodernists, but that there are three kinds of existentialists. The existentialist who um, died before existentialism was ever a term, existentialists who claim not to be existentialists, and Sartre. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very similar sort of confusion when you get to postmodernism. But um, sort of the underlying theme that kind of would make you want to group all these different sort of theoreticians together is there is a, a skepticism about universal standards of objectivity and rationality and um, a skepticism about truth and reality in general or the validity of those concepts in general. Mm -hmm. And those in, so on the one hand, there are those claims about rationality and objectivity. And then there's sort of the concomitant attitudes that you might develop if you were skeptical about truth or objectivity. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, these big debates about uh, postmodernism are familiar to the English-speaking world, uh, particularly from the starting in the 1970s and really kind of hitting a stride in the 1980s and 90s. Um, so the first great PC war was 1990. Um, so about 1990 to 1995, and sort of 2015 to now, we're kind of living through this, the second great PC war. But in the 1980s, there kind of came up this whole generation of scholars um, who were, especially in literary studies, actually Yale being mm -hmm. a particular epicenter of this, um, known to being kind of one of the first places where this kind of stuff became influential, uh, became very influential in anthropology and in sociology. So in the literary side, um, there were lots of debates about canon in, in the early 1990s. Um, and, there was an idea on the part of some who were leading towards postmodernism that um, that this kind of honor roll of say um, uh, you know, Stendhal, Flaubert, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, the sort of uh, the great honor roll of dead white men, as they became known, mm -hmm. was uh, a, a sort of 
arbitrary construction that was built more on a kind of cultural pre- cultural prejudice than anything uh, really objective. It, it, you know, it wasn't that these guys were more important to teach to undergraduates or that it was more important for them to be for undergraduates to encounter this in these sort of survey of literature courses. That was just kind of the expression of a sort of, uh, in the harsh view of this, that was just a kind of colonialist um, Eurocentric attitude that Uh just sort of picked these people. Um, So that was, that was, and then of course, uh, a lot of conservatives, uh, William J. Bennett and, um, um, say Saul Bellow reacted strongly against this idea. Um, Saul Bellow famous said, like, um, uh, who is the Tolstoy of the Zulu? Who is the right. Proust of the Papuans? Right. Saying, like, you know, no, Tolstoy and Proust are very important and they are more important than, um, than, uh, you know, the folk literature of this or that tribe, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there were all kinds of moderate positions, uh, in between. A great statement of the moderate position, which I wish sort of became more of a consensus is, uh, John Searle's essay from the early nineties in the New York Review of Books called The Storm Over the University, um, which uh, it may still be behind a paywall, but if anybody subscribes to New York Review of Books, um, that's a great place to go looking. Um, and then on the other hand, there were the great science wars of the 80s and 90s, where some radical um, anthropologists started to s- to go after the idea that Western science was a uniquely reliable guide to the world. Um, or, or, or in an especially privileged way of looking at the world, or that Western medicine was a particularly successful uh, sort of method. And um, this is the time of, you know, the famous Sokol hoax. Yeah, explain what that is for people who don't know. So Alan Sokol... Uh, was a a physicist, as I understand. Um, I'm pretty pretty sure that's right, but a scientist at any rate. And he um, wrote a postmodernist critique of hard science and got it published in a journal. Um, and it was supposed to be a you know a technical postmodernist position paper and he got it published in a journal, but of course it wasn't anything he really believed. It was just gibberish that he wrote to try to sort of ape the obscure style of postmodernists. And he did it to try to prove that there isn't this, it was all just kind of smoke and mirrors and they couldn't even, even the postmodernists themselves couldn't really tell the difference between their own stuff and somebody just making fun of them. Somebody right. just sort of stringing together big postmodernist sounding words to make a whole lot of nonsense. Um, yeah, so it, it, you know, you can't, can't tell the parody from the original thing, which actually, to me, sounds a bit postmodern itself, but... Um, yeah, but except that he took it as having a reductio ad absurdum kind of... It was about gravi- gravity or something, right? Claiming that like gravity was a social construct. Um, I you know I've read it, but I forget. It's it starts with um, a quote from Derrida about like particle physics. Uh, it, yeah, it, it, it's it, it's very silly stuff um, that was supposed to sort of ostensibly undermining basic basic physical science. Mm-hmm. Um. It was a very popular thing. Too much has been made of it. Alan Sokol has admitted that too much has been made of it. Um, it doesn't prove the point by itself, but I'm just kind of laying the scene that 
all this sort of postmodern skepticism of truth and reality became fairly widespread and it became a sort of big um, um, it, it became a big topic of debate back then in the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. um, but it's also important not to overstate its influence um, it became a big deal in sort of sociology and anthropology um, it became a big deal in literary studies um, it was pretty marginal in a lot of other places. There weren't a lot of postmodernists in actual academic English-speaking philosophy. The big sort of nod in that direction was Richard Rorty, who was maybe the one big star in the 1980s who had postmodern or quasi-postmodern positions. Um, there became a community of scholars in... Um, history who were postmodernists and apparently or from my reading i haven't studied as much history as philosophy but from my reading they became somewhat influential but um they were always a kind of minority report a kind of sub-community and they never became dominant or too influential and from what i understand their influence has been been receding since the sort of high watermark of postmodernism in the in the academy. Mm-hmm. So, um, but during that time when there were a lot of high profile fights about science and about the value of culture that were spilling over into um, into popular culture and popular presses and, you know, things were showing up not only in academic journals, but in op-ed pages and in journals of opinion. Um, A lot of PR damage was done to the humanities. And what's annoying to people like me who love philosophy is a lot of PR damage was uh, done to philosophy and philosophy gets held responsible for a lot of ideas that it never really propagated in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, it, a lot of these I- arguments are philosophical arguments, but they're usually carried into battle by literary people, people like Stanley Fish or Catherine Stimson in the early 90s. Um, and... Um, but people don't. People on the other side don't necessarily um, didn't necessarily realize that, and so um, philosophy gets a lot of the brunt, which uh, has created a, a lasting resentment in a lot of people, including myself. Um, one thing to notice about these postmodernist people is that they're making philosophical arguments that very few philosophers like or care about. Okay. And that never seems to bother them mm-hmm. in a way that I find perplexing. Um, so would you say it's you, more like a pop understanding of philosophy and what's going on in the world than what's taken seriously by academics? No. Um, the pop kind of version is a definitely a reflection of of the academic conversation, but the academics who are taking this stuff seriously aren't philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are a lot of the times, there are people um, coming. The people, who, the people this emanates from, are people in sociology, literary studies, and. Um, um, uh, people in the various new identity studies departments, um, which are these kinds of these weird islands within the academy that um, seem to have these very strange views. And they seem to be sort of isolated, but they're very influential. So I think a lot of... Um, so you, you mean like... Um 
African-American studies, uh, women's studies, that kind of thing? Yeah, so now, now increasingly called Africana studies, from mm-hmm. what I understand. Uh, yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of Foucault, um, a lot of Derrida and stuff that sort of emanates out from that. Um, you know, I think that's where a lot of the writers on, you know, Salon and Guardian US, um, I think that's where a lot of them got it from the Academy and then sort of took it out into the media. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I definitely think it's what happened to sort of a Ta-Nehisi Coates, for instance. He even writes about it in Between the World and Me. Um, Hmm, okay. Uh, the sort of, except that he was apparently so radical as a young man, he had to be de-radicalized by the college radicals. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's where a lot of it comes from. And actually, I've kind of had the sense, because I read more Salon, more Guardian US, more um, more of the stuff than is good for a person. Um, I've long had the sense that the, the, the writers there, um, don't appreciate how radical their thinking is. Um, I think their teachers did, but I think they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I'm probably getting us away from our topic, which is, um, Postmodernism and Trump. Yeah, so is, why don't you lay out your objection to the Jeet here uh, argument and the one I, br- I briefly outlined about Trump being a postmodern figure or postmodernism being useful in understanding Trump? Well, for the, the first thing looking at here is um, it's very, I've read this, I've gone through it a few times and it's very hard to know what the claim is, frankly. Um, there's a lot of stuff here, and and, and this is not, I, I don't want to make this too much about Jeet here. Um, there's a lot of this kind of, uh, whenever I encounter this sort of Trump and postmodernism, I have this same problem. What, what what exactly what okay it's fine to say you know i i see where trump could put you in mind of postmodernism and postmodernism could put you in mind of trump right there's a lot of talk about um illusion and reality you know you could see how you could bring that theme to bear on either there's a lot of talk about media manipulation you could bring that to bear on either but what it, what claim exactly is helpful here? You know, what, what, so maybe maybe I can toss it to you. What specific aspect of Trump, Trump's rise, Trumpism, the media coverage of Trump? What can you put your finger on and say that's postmodern? Um, it's I, I would point to what I said before about how Trump um, used the medium of TV to pretend to be something. And then because of that actually became that thing. So I got, he was a middling business figure and then had multiple bankruptcies and then played a, um, played a Titan of industry on TV. And I think without, I think without the apprentice, there's no way Trump um, is president. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that, that did more than Fox news, I think to lay the, you know, create the myth of, of Trump, so you know he's uh, he's a game show host who uh, parlayed that into the idea that that I you know I alone can fix it, as he said um, at his um, the Republican National Convention speech. Um, that strikes me as, as postmodern, um, and uh, you know the simulacrum turning into. Reality. Um, I also wrote a piece that um, that I put on Medium about six months ago about the absurdity of Trump. I, I don't know enough to say how absurdity fits into postmodern 
thought, but it does seem to align in some ways that um, this is just the, you know the state of affairs has become ridiculous. Um, I think there's something interesting about Trump. You know, Trump's that Jeep points out with Trump's kind of like slumming it and how he's kind of a figure, even though he's um, a purported billionaire, he uh, is like a trashy person and he eats trash food. He loves McDonald's, though apparently he only eats that because he's afraid of being poisoned. Um, he has very crass sensibilities, as everyone knows. Um, and he kind of revels in being a boorish, crass figure, while at the same time occupying the most powerful position in the world. So that weird combination of, of high and low, and that he takes things from, you know, reality television, the trashiest genre that has very little re relation to actual reality. I don't know. I, I don't know where, like, what the where this all leads you, Jeet kind of says it, that he makes an argument about like, economic inequality like, creating the ground for postmodernism and then kind of says at the end that a challenger to Trump has to make an economic argument, not a cultural argument against Trumpism. I'm not sure whether I buy that or not. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> I guess that's what I would say. Yeah, well, I mean, what you just gave me, you just gave me a lot and a kind of a lot of different things. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I'll focus on one thing, which is about <laughs> this sort of business about the pretend businessman becomes the real businessman, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> um. Because, again, I think that that gets into the kind of the ontological claims, which I think are distinctive of postmodernism. <clears throat> so is the idea seems to be something like the pretend businessman is more real than the real businessman, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, so we should say something about Trump's rise and why someone would think that he was a pretend businessman. Uh, he was basically, I mean, Trump inherited a lot of wealth and a lot of influence, right? Um, his father was friends with the, the mayor of New York, and um, he had a lot of political contacts and in contacts in the real estate world and, and the, uh, the, the local New York world, and he managed to leverage this into some business successes and also some pretty remarkable business failures. And he was never he was never really one of the the big players in New York real estate, right? Um, which is, of course, a very big world um, because it's one of the most expensive, populous places in the world. Um. But he managed on television and in the papers and et cetera to cultivate an image that he was more powerful, more prestigious, um, more elite, if you like, than he actually was, right? Yeah, there's. I'm reminded some stand-up comedian had a joke about Trump that he's like a hobo's imagining of what a rich person is, that's that's who, you know, that's his embodiment. A lot of people say, oh, there is the, did you read the restaurant review of the restaurant in Trump Tower? Um, I feel like I must have when it came out, but I don't remember it. Right, and the, the reviewer was saying that it was, Trump is the poor person's idea of what a rich person is. Mm -hmm. But, <clears throat> okay, to stay with this, and you mentioned the word, Simulacrum, which is from Baudrillard. Um, so there's, there's the idea. So that claim that sort of, uh, and Baudrillard has this idea of the hyper real, right? That 
there's the kind of uh, the hyper real, I guess, is what we're doing right now, or certainly what people who will be watching this will be doing, uh, or will be communing with, is the kind of the uh, the simulated world, the world of information, the world of sign and um, representation. That's it's not a the abstract world. Um, not the actual physical day-to-day world, which is what you see when you shut your computer and you look around you at the physical space around you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <clears throat> um, so this idea that uh, that Trump sort of became... Uh, cultivated an image um, uh, that was not, didn't have any basis in reality and then used it to launch himself into actual power. For one thing, I think it's uncontroversial that that's what actually happened. Um, But I think that that's totally explicable in modern terms. Mm -hmm. It's explicable in terms of... um, traditional notions of truth and objectivity and reality, uh, reality and illusion. I don't feel the need to relax or revise any of my notions about evidence or reality in order to explain that. And in fact, I find that if I do, I'm not able to explain it nearly as adequately, right? To, to tell the story about what happened with Trump, you have to be able to say that, no, he actually was not really successful. I mean, he appeared to be successful, but was not. Right? Right. So, so you're saying that there's still an underlying truth claim of Trump not being, not being a genius businessman. And that's whereas postmodernism is more the rejection of truth. Yes. And so I just don't see what this kind of distinctive um, claims about ontology or claims about evidence and rationality, how they could possibly help. And if I don't, um, and if I see that these claims about reality and appearance or objectivity and irrationality don't help, then it just doesn't seem that there's anything very distinctive about the postmodernist story. And it just doesn't seem like postmodernist helps at all. Mm-hmm. Postmodernism helps at all in trying to explicate this situation. What do you, what do you think of the way Trump himself? Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Can, can I? Yeah, sorry. Have, um, no, no, I, I meant to stop there, but this is typically what happens at postmodernism. Is it ends up meaning something wackadoo, or it ends up meaning nothing at all? Um, and the, the best sort of expose of this were, uh, which unfortunately is also at NYRB and behind the paywall. Uh, again, John Searle wrote a piece called Turning the Word Upside Down, where he kind of goes into this. Uh, uh, but you can go and read the uh, the exchanges, which uh, he after he wrote an article, he got pushback from actual postmodernists, and you can read the exchanges between him and postmodernists. Uh, but it, it, it it's a very typical. A lot of people have noticed this about postmodernism is they start out by claiming something that seems really sort of exciting but very implausible, and then when you push them, it ends up being not very exciting at all. Mm-hmm. So, but go ahead. Um, do you think that Trump's, you know, Trump's relationship to the truth, which is what the Edsel piece is about, so obviously Trump is someone who lies, although I think some people consider it controversial to say whether or not he lies, because the question is whether he... Um, 
understands what the actual truth is and is purposely misrepresenting it or is just saying what he thinks is true. But he's, you know, he, he has no, the, the, the actual facts don't constrain him in the way they would a normal politician and all politicians lie. But he, uh, I would say that he does kind of know what the truth is and he does lie more than the average, um, politician. He also, but he also, um, seems to genuinely believe things that aren't true. Like he believes, I mean, he, he seems to genuinely believe that Barack Obama wasn't born in the U.S. Uh, he, it's been reported that he, um, was telling associates that it actually wasn't him. It wasn't his voice on the, mm-hmm. um, grab him by the pussy tape. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and you know, he admitted after, um, after that came out, he admitted it was him, but he seems to have gone back to that. So then we get into like the, is he in the early stages of dementia question? Um, but he, you know, he popularized the term fake news. His, his counselor, Kelly and Conway, popularized alternative facts. Um, the fact that he, uh, is a dissembler and believes things that aren't true did not harm his rise to power. And there's plenty of people who are ready to go along with whatever he says. That's not postmodern. There, there have always been political leaders who say things that aren't true and are able to motivate the masses to uh, believe their falsehoods, but I don't know where I'm going with this. He does, he, he seems qual- qualitatively different than any previous, uh, American president, certainly, and, and probably even politician in the way he, um, doesn't care about the truth at all and, uh, attempts to create his, you know, his own reality. Does it, does any of this strike you as, as postmodern? Well, uh, l- let me let me see if this helps. There, there are two ways in which you might think postmodernism could be relevant to Trump, and they're very strikingly different. They're totally different in terms of our own philosophical commitments, but they often get confused. There's one one way you can think about it, which is postmodernist views of knowledge and objectivity are terrible. And the postmodernist theses are not true. There's a, put a caveat, put an asterisk next to true there, because (laughs) one of the self-refuting things about postmodernism is that they can't say that their own claims are true. Right. Okay. Right. Um, but uh, but we can say their theses aren't good theses. But where sort of the the cultural logic or the way people are behaving is as though postmodernist theses were good theses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now. If we do that, we're not committing ourselves to um, postmodernist theses from our sort of external point of view. We're just saying that that's a kind of, it's a good um, theory of our cultural confusion. Sort of, it helps us delineate the bad ideas which are sort of taken root in the culture, right? Mm-hmm. The other view is to say, oh, is to commit yourself to postmodernist theses and say that um, the sort of fracturing, um, the fragmentation and popular opinion and the people running to different corners are, and the people who seem to have different truths or live in different realities um, to say that that's reflective of the actual truth or uh, the that that reflects some genuine postmodern insight into the nature of truth and rationality mm-hmm. right those two ideas are very distinct I'm willing to have a conversation about the first one, though I doubt it for reasons I kind of 
got into earlier on in the conversation. But the second one is uh, something we absolutely have to banish. The worst thing we could do is to start um, doubting truth and objectivity ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, because that that will only uh, make it harder to get back to um, it, it'll only make the way back to where we need to get to uh, narrower and steeper than it already is mm-hmm. um, to, to, to really restore healthier public debates we need to uh, restore a common faith in the idea that there is a common intersubjective and discoverable truth. Um, and I think not only about matters of fact, but also about uh, moral and political values. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very, very hard. And I've gone around with people in comment sections at Blogging Heads, at the Electric Agora, to see the difference between the two. There's one, you know, um, there's, there's, but there, it just simply, there is a big difference. There's a big difference between saying this current sort of fragmented, fragmented landscape is the result of people thinking that there isn't a common discoverable reality and saying that this common, that this fragmented landscape is the result of their not being a common discoverable reality. Um, uh, And we have to keep that distinction clearly in mind, because if we don't, and this is one place where I think Jadir was right, and he gets into it towards the end of his essay, is that there's the possibility that we could start um, indulging in the sort of... um, postmodernist tactics ourselves like your side gets to have your story then I get to have my story too and sort of turn about it's fair play two can play at this game Um, and that would be extremely dangerous and um, would only get us further into the mud and that's that's really what I want to warn against we need to stick ever more firmly to um to neutral, objective um, kind of scruples here. Yeah, and and the tendency to believe conspiracy theories. Uh, on it seems like Trump has ignited the latent tendency to believe conspiracy theories on the left. You see these wacko uh, Twitter people like Eric Garland and Louise Mensch who are saying things that are you know see a vast Russian conspiracy and where everyone's an agent and. Um, you know, there are webs of conspirators and all sorts of illogical things are, you know, just bound to happen at any point. You know, the bench at one point said the, uh, the marshal of the Supreme Court was going to arrest Trump when there is no marshal of the Supreme Court. So you have these kind of, like, charlatan types, um, who have long operated on the right, of which Donald Trump is one of them, and, um, now they're operating on, on the left as well. Um, I want to bring up one more point about Trump and postmodernism, which is the um, the architectural point. So I think um, I'm kind of a lay um, admirer of architecture and don't know a ton about the different movements, but they're the um, it, it's one of the spaces where people who call themselves postmodernists or were labeled postmodernists had the most sway in the type of architecture that became popular in the 80s and 90s. And Trump, of course, is a builder, and he um, he operated the um, Taj Mahal Casino Hotel in Atlantic City, which is a postmodern architectural, <laughs> architectural um, object because it quotes the uh, actual Taj Mahal in a tawdry, you know, Las Vegas style way. And so the idea is it, it, it's um, transparently pretend, right? It's yeah. not trying to create an aesthetic effect. It's trying to 
create um, a pretend version of the aesthetic effect that the actual ancient Egyptians or the uh, in Indians um, projected. Right. Also, yeah. pseudo Egyptian casinos. Right? So, yeah. um, I think Rob Venturi, the architect, um, wrote a book called something like "Paying Attention to Las Vegas" or something, where he made the argument that the aesthetic, you know, clashes and historical quotations and uh, learning from Las Vegas. Right. That's it. Um, of that you see on the Las Vegas strip uh, or this is something people should draw from. And then, you know, the Trump, uh, you know, tr- Trump's like aesthetic of, you know, his, his personal, um, you know, his personal apartment in Trump tower with, you know, looks like, Versailles or something, and the the chairs are, you know, the symbol is the, like, chair, like, rich person chair, like a gold, you know, uh, Louis the whoever, um... 14th, yeah. Yeah, uh, so just, there, there, I think there there's something to that, and how Trump, the Trump aesthetic is, like, kitsch and collage and high-low you know, um, clashing and, uh, yeah, the, the poor person's idea of what a rich person is like and gaudiness. And this does seem, yeah, I think that, I think there's a further connection there. Yeah. Okay. But postmodernism doesn't have any monopoly on irony or, or even self-awareness. Um, yeah, it's it's true. I remember there was an interview with um with um the guy who wrote The Art of the Deal. Mm-hmm. That he was on he was on one of the airplanes and or well anyway, he was he was touring around with Trump. And um no, I'm sorry, it wasn't the author of an art of, art of the deal, it was somebody else who was profiling him. But anyway, it was a journalist. And um, he was, Trump was bringing him around and he said, he pointed to a painting and it was in a big gold frame. And he said, do you know what that painting costs? And um, he told them, you know, it was very expensive, which is sort of not why you're supposed to hang paintings, right? You're supposed to hang paintings to be beautiful, Um but he doesn't really care about what they're um, they're being beautiful. He just cares about the signal that it's sending, right? Yeah, and he also <laughs> speaking of Trump's paintings, I think he on his plane he has a painting. I can't remember who it's supposed to be by, but um, like some impressionist, and he said it was the original. Fake, right? Yeah, but it was a fake, yeah. and the original is like in you know, the Chicago's art museum or the art Institute of Chicago or something. So, but does Trump, and I don't think Trump would care as long as he could, um, tell people that he owned a, an expensive painting. Um, it's true. Profidants would not really affect him, I think. Um, and he's fine with the fakeness of it as long as he can convince other people that it's real. That's all. I mean, I, I see a lot of, I'm repulsed by that sensibility as I expect you are. Um, I, I think you're right in that that is Trump's sensibility. I just don't see how much postmodernism or these sort of silly post-war friendship scurantist ideas do in help us, helping us explicate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, all these things are, um, they should be, ex- they're, they're socially explicable, right? They're, 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 we don't need to, any kind of ontological commitments to, to explicate them. Um, we should be talking about what it is about our society that, um, makes it the case that someone would not care about what's really valuable or um, what is actually the case and only care about what 
appears to be, what it appears to be, or what it signals to other people, and not try to get bogged down in this kind of claims about uh, what reality is, uh, which I just think doesn't get nearly as much purchase. It doesn't get to the heart of the issue. Uh-huh. This, is, this is a social problem. It's not a mes- metaphysical or epistemological problem. Uh-huh. Um, and just to, to underscore that I'm not saying this for no reason, the first sentence of the here piece is, the nature of reality is an open question in the age of Donald Trump. <laughs> well, no, it isn't. The nature of reality is what it's always been. Um, but, but American culture is an, an open question in the age of Donald Trump. Right. And yeah, I, I think that Jeet was probably, um, you know, having his tongue in his cheek when he wrote that line. And there are, you know, if you had told someone 10 years ago that Donald Trump would be president, they probably think you're, um, joking with them. So there's, there's, <laughs> you know, I, I've had this kind of running joke on Twitter where I say like, you know, the, the author of reality is a hack or like, Reality is coming from Mad Libs. Like, there's just a lot of really weird shit happening that could make you feel like we're in a simulation run by someone with a weird sense of humor. But um, and that's a way of understanding, trying to make some, you know, ironic sense out of what's happening without actually thinking, <laughs> without actually thinking that. I want to um, bring up one more thing that we disagreed with on Twitter, which is um, Bitcoin. Um, mm-hmm. I, I said that Bitcoin was like a postmodern, um, you know, bubble, and it seems like the craze over Bitcoin is different than other previous market bubbles. You know, um, in tulip fever, you at least got a pretty flower. In uh, the uh, when you buy a stock, you at least have some share of ownership of a company or a piece of paper or something. But with Bitcoin, you're purchasing nothing. Um, besides, aside from some lines of code saying you have something, but it's really nothing at all, and the value is entirely um, inflated, created by the social group, and yet, you know, tons of people are buying are buying into this literally. Um, why? Why did you object to? What, <laughs> I think you said no, 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 no when I tweeted that there was something postmodern yeah. about Bitcoin. Uh, well, first of all, it struck me, and actually I've had this thought in the back of the head for the past couple of minutes as well, that the more relevant concept rather than um, uh, any postmodernist com- concept would be the Marxist concept of the fetishization of goods, right, which also gets back to Trump's painting. Um, he doesn't see the painting as a painting. He doesn't use it as a painting. He doesn't view it as a painting. He views it as a holder of value, right? Um, so, th- again, that, that idea of fetish is it's you, you use something for other than the purpose for which it's intended. Your, your, your attention to it has become... Um, uh, over, you've become over involved in it. Um, sort of like the, the other, sort of like the idea of, uh, the, the Freudian idea of sexual fetish is a, it's a sexual symbol that becomes detached from the object, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's fine to associate, um, sort of lingerie with sexual attraction, but then if you start, caring only about lingerie and not about the women it's supposed to remind you of, then something's gone wrong, right? Your attention has become too narrowed and you're not using it in the way that it's supposed to be used. You've mm-hmm. sort of become involved in this confusion and sort of Mark said the same thing happens about goods. Um, so that struck me as maybe the more promising concept, although I'm not a Marxist either, but the, this first of all, there are speculation-driven bubbles all the time. Right. Um, it doesn't strike me that the Bitcoin bubble is any different from when people are um, sp- spending way too much money on um, 
barrels of crude or um, uh, bars of gold, right? That was mm-hmm. a big one. Um, but, those, but those are actual things. So, like, you know, if but Bitcoin there's a way... Is an actual, Bitcoin is an actual thing, too. It, it's not a very useful thing, but that's the same thing would be true of, you know, when people were paying way too much for a barrel of crude, they were paying more than it was actually useful for. Um, Bitcoin is useful for something, just not all that useful because currency <laughs> is useful. Currency is useful and cryptocurrencies are occasionally useful for things that currencies aren't useful because it's a medium of – no, currency is a good. <laughs> currency is a good. It's the medium of exchange. Right. right? You're right. So, yeah. Um, so, there's some, the ontological status of money is vexed and not what I entirely understand, but it's almost like uh, – a cryptocurrency is like the derivative function of money. I mean, in, in the, you know, when people, there's been like hacks of uh, people's uh, Bitcoin wallets and their money is stolen and, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of, <laughs> of Bitcoin uh, disappear from people's wallets and stuff. And I, I don't know. It's just like, there's no, when you drill down, like what, what do you actually have there? You have like lines of code. It's like a representation of something, not actually something like Uh, in in oil speculation, you still like can go and and, like you own like some barrels, you, you own a precious metal and here you're just owning lines of code in your list back there. You mentioned something that you could see as having real value aside from just people speculating on it, was a share in a company, mm-hmm. right? A share in a company is something that's as abstract and as socially con- constructed as uh, a piece of currency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it still has some real value in itself, no more or less than a barrel of crude, right? Right, and so, yeah, owning a stock... And the same is true of Bitcoin, is what I'm going to say. Okay, so owning a stock is like, you know, you used to be able to get um, a certificate <laughs> saying that you owned so-and-so number of shares, and that probably doesn't happen anymore, so there's... Um, and when the company goes... If the company goes bankrupt, you don't... You know, your your value is wiped out. But there does seem to be some difference between... Um, the, the uses and how one, <laughs> I don't know, the, 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 the sheriff's doctor seems more real to me than the, um, than the amount of Bitcoin that you get that just has no, <laughs> no underlying value in the way that, um, you know, a company, if you own a share of, uh, a firm, a share of a company, you're entitled to some percentage of the profits, and um and in, you have there's some like legal obligations that the company has to you so it does it does seem different to me and i think that's what's illusory um and, and i think it was the atlantic ran a piece called i lost my pin number which is about somebody who lost like $30,000 worth of bitcoin because they didn't have the they lost the PIN number and they couldn't access it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you had $30,000 of Bitcoin and you suddenly couldn't access it, it would feel fairly real, <laughs> wouldn't it? I mean, that would be that, that, in the same way that the share has, owning the share has real consequences. So that makes it different from not owning the share. Owning the Bitcoin has real consequences. That makes it different from not owning the Bitcoin. It, it is a good. It it does have a certain value. I actually don't work for Bitcoin or anything. I'm not trying <laughs> to give you a sort of brief for their product, but I have, you know, from everything I understand, it's a bubble. Um, but, you know, it is a real, it's a thing. Uh, um, a cryptocurrency is a good. It does have certain uses. It can provide certain functions, some of them nefarious, of course, but nonetheless, it can serve those functions. Um, so there is a kind of, it's not just, a, it's not nothing. It's not postmodernist <laughs> nothing. It's, uh-huh. it's an actual 
means of exchange and it has a certain sort of um, uh, existence on the economic plane, yeah. Um, yeah, there's an interesting piece that I think Alexis, Ma- Alexis Madrigal wrote on The Atlantic that was about Bitcoin and blockchain technology, arguing that maybe blockchain is a technology that people that was it that is interesting in itself but has no actual practical uses because everything that you could conceivably use it for could just be more easily provided for with a non-blockchain technology um, i'll dig up the link for that and we'll include it below um it, it may be but uh, but still bitcoin's trying to do that and for the moment it can do that so it's a real thing and if i could just draw a moral out of the bitcoin conversation is I, I can see where it would be promising to look at, um, to try to apply postmodernist ideas to the kind of Bitcoin case and say like, oh, well, it's a pretend thing. It's a not real thing that's real. And that sort of sounds ontologically interesting. Um, this fantasy thing has become a real thing because we now live in this sort of fantasy world and maybe we should read Baudrillard and um, see if we can explain it that way. But when you push on the details of the case, I think it turns out that no, the ontological claim becomes uninteresting. And, you know, if you want to explain this, you're going to have to, you know, use more humdrum things like economics and get into the, the social logic rather than into anything metaphysical. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got about an hour. Is there anything else you wanted to say about postmodernism before we wrap up? Yeah, I'll, I'll end on a sour note if I can. We were talking about sort of the dangers of, um, taking, particularly if I may, I don't think I'm, uh, outing you here. We on the left, um, taking sort of, these relativist or postmodernist weapons into our own hands. Um, two things strike me. So one of the postmodernist themes is that sort of um, any kind of neutral battleground, any kind of attempt to have um, a neutral debate or a neutral set of rules that are free and fair and open to all, we're going to end up being somehow gerrymandered behind the scenes or a kind of ploy on the part of someone in power, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Foucault is, of course, a great hero of this tradition. And um, Stanley, Stanley Fish talked a lot about this in the Freedom of Speech debates 30 years ago. Um, and two things jump out at me. I see, you know, Congress is supposed to work in this sort of free and fair way where we both um, acknowledge each other as having legitimate interests or at least legitimate opinions and then making compromises uh, between them. And, you know, Ted Cruz and the Freedom Caucus rejected that idea and instead went totally to war and um, became totally obstructionist and sort of demanded their way or the highway. And I see a lot of people on the left saying that we should now do that in response. Mm-hmm. Um, we should take up those kinds of Republican tactics and we shouldn't enter into debate on, on good terms or um, in good faith because that will just be abused. It's only the naive who wants to um, enter debate in good faith. Um, Now it's just, uh, there's a cynical view that there is a, naked power, that it just has to be naked power struggle all the time. And the second right. area would be the media. Um, Robert Wright was making comments on this in the Mickey Kaus dialogue about how 
uh, attitude is now just being sort of ejected into straight reporting all the time. And there are a lot of journalists who are trying to pressure, you know, for more of that in straight reporting. And I think more and more people are retreating from the idea that, you know, the New York Times, at least the New York Times hard reporting is not supposed to represent anyone. It's supposed to be neutral and objective and fair. Again, that's seen as just um, naivete. Everything is cynical power play all the time. And so we have our New York Times and they have their Wall Street Journal. And those are kinds of two developments that I think have um, postmodernist fingerprints on them and that I think are very dangerous and very destructive. And I think resorting to neutrality, objectivity uh, are, are, are the are the way forward and the way to a better future. So that's why I find this stuff worth arguing about and worth thinking about. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting connection. Um, I mean, you see this in the people who want to, who applaud Richard Spencer getting punched on the street. And, um, yeah, there's, I think there's Marxist, uh, tinges to it as well. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I, I do, I do see the, that there's a lot of people on the left who just, yeah, just see the power struggle and not any sort of objective, uh, attempt, objective, <laughs> you know, collaborative search for truth, um, they mm-hmm. they have the truth. They they are the good people, and the bad people must be defeated. I see that mm-hmm. particularly on Twitter very often. Yep. Yes. Particularly on Twitter. Uh, so speaking of Twitter, you are on Twitter. How can people follow your your writing on Twitter? Yes, um, it's just at David Ottlinger, O T T L I N G E R, and I will. Um, I will tweet anything that I write. Hopefully there'll be some things coming along soon. Um, tweet it out there and just um, generally vetch and complain and talk about philosophical things. And I'm on Twitter as well. Um, R-E-A-C-W, A-R-Y-E-H-C-W. Um, and... and follow Arya because it's basically like following all of Twitter, just curated... <laughs> Curated uh, and selected for you. The be- yeah, the, the the best the best of Twitter. Um, uh, thanks for that endorsement of sorts, <laughs> um, because many parts of Twitter are bad. So <laughs> it's I would consider that a yeah a mixed endorsement. Um, yeah. So uh, thanks so much, David, uh, for coming on. Thanks to viewers and listeners. Uh, you know, this uh, Meaning of Life TV is available on YouTube. Uh, I think that's youtube.com slash Meaning of Life. And uh, people can get this as an audio podcast as well if they search for um, meaning of life, uh, one word in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Yeah. So uh, thank you, David. And thanks to all our viewers and listeners. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.